HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Visit Ithaca. Ithaca, New York boasts an authentic craft beverage experience, tasty farm-to-table culinary adventures, and scenic outdoor recreation among 150 waterfalls. Plan your trip today with help from visitithaca.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, where a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year, we're celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, we've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and more. It's been 10 years, and we're just getting started. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to The Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is Tracy Brandt. We'll talk to Tracy about women and wine, natural wine, and donkey and goat. We'll taste the 2017 Eliza for our weekly wine sip. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. Tracy Brandt moved away from a career in tech towards a love and interest in wine. Tracy and her eventual husband, Jared, took a wine sabbatical in France and had the opportunity to work under the tutelage of famed winemaker Eric Texier. They returned to California to continue a life in wine, helping to pioneer the low-intervention natural wine movement there. Their winery is Donkey and Goat in Berkeley, California. Welcome to the Great Nation, Tracy. Thank you. All right, Tracy, I want you to give our listeners a little context of who you are. I had mentioned that you had come from the tech world. So take me from the tech world and how and when things in your life morphed into wine from there and the creation of Donkey and Goat, which means get us to the current. Sure. So I'm going to back up slightly. So I uh, came from North Carolina to California in 98 uh, on an advertising career and quickly decided that technology was too exciting. So I kind of jumped ship and landed at a dot-com where I met Jared. And we started 
uh, I was already, of course, drinking wine, but I hadn't entertained the idea of making wine. Jared was a little bit more uh, interested in learning the mechanics. And as we started to vacation in the coming years, we were typically headed to Europe and traveling through the Rhone Valley or Burgundy and just becoming more and more uh, kind of passionate and, you know, really interested in, in what was going on in the cellar. So nine eleven. The cellar more than the field. Well, the or cellar both? and both. Okay. But at the time, um, there was kind of this idea brewing, uh, really in Jared's head, that he would take a sabbatical and go work a harvest and and learn kind of how to make the wine, which seemed a little bit more uh, approachable because he only had about three months to give versus doing the entire growing season. Um, so fast forward to after 9-11 and our, our, rel- our individual startups were kind of no more. <laughs> and uh, we decided to take a pause. You know, we've both been at it for about 10 years. We're a little burnt out. And we were dating at the time and, and started thinking about the idea of, of doing something in Europe. And this was, you know, eight years before Instagram, four years before Facebook. So there was no real visual in our face as to what this actually would be and look like and, and feel like. You know, we're 30-somethings uh, deciding to take a pause. So it was a little unusual, at least in our circle of friends. And even when we went for it, we were uh, a little taken aback after we were about six months in to find out we were too old to get the stage visa in France because <laughs> really? as a plus 30-year-old, it was not available. That's funny. Um, but yeah, so basically, uh, started a little bit of a kind of a, a research, you know, what wines were interesting, um, who were their makers, how would we go about finding them and connecting with them. And, um, that led us to, you know, zeroing in on Eric Texier and talking to Joe Dresner and ultimately sending a fax because this was also before uh, email was as prevalent as it is today. Certainly texting, too. Oh, uh, there was no texting. I had a flip phone. That's right. Um, so, yeah, so we literally fax Eric and Laurence, and they wisely uh, tell us that they would want to meet us before agreeing to have us come and uh, stay with them for an extended period of time. So, again, this is, you know, post 9-11, and Priceline was was quite the thing. So we bid on two tickets to Paris from SFO on a Wednesday for a flight on Friday for $300, and we get it. So we hop a plane, we go meet the taxiers, we like each other, and they decided to let us come. So a couple months later, we sublet our San Francisco apartment and moved to France. So you literally pack bags to stay there for a little while. He takes you in. You got to go back and settle, and then you go back, or we only went for a weekend to meet and greet, and literally came back, and then and then returned. Extended tutelage and all of that. Exactly, we went back in May of two thousand two. So we, uh, I have to say, compared to what I do with my own harvest interns, it was a lovely way to get started because we had from May until August to get to know Eric, Laurence, the team, the seller, to rack wines and. And really learn in, in a very different rhythm than the harvest rhythm, which was quite lovely. All right, so you finish that. You come back. So we came back in 2003. and Sort of permanently. Like you, you left there to come back to settle, right? We came back. Well, San Francisco is where our apartment still was. So right. we came back and 
honestly at the time expected to kind of go back into our, you know, lucrative tech jobs and um, figured, you know, we would at some day diverge our path back to wine. But we are both big believers in um, hands-on education and figured if we really wanted to solidify all that we learned, we needed to make some wine and we needed to apply it without having Eric right there to, to answer all the questions and such. So 2003, we go and convince uh, a friend to turn his Petrero Hill basement into a little cellar. And we then go and find several vineyards that were willing to sell us some fruit, and we make six barrels of wine. So you start right away. Did you feel there was an immediacy? Like, if we don't do it now, we'll forget or we won't get to it? I mean, Well, that was kind of part the point. Of it? it was definitely to, you know, we had been given a, a very, in, you know, in-depth and intense because 2002 was a really difficult year in their own uh, education, but we wanted to apply it ourselves, you know, right. make wine ourselves. And so that was the idea of 2003. Um, but the reality is once we got into it, you know, like many, we were, we kind of, uh, couldn't resist, uh, taking it forward. And in 2004, we decided we had a couple opportunities happen and started a company named it Donkey and Goat and, and made our first commercial vintage. So we're leaving kind of a big part out here, and I guess it's a good time for you to talk about what influences Eric Texier had on you. Sure. You know, what you learned, how he did his business, and what that meant to you, and how you do your business, which is making wine. So, you know, tell me a little about what Eric's philosophy was, why that's important to you, and when you got here, what your goals you know, or as far as how you wanted to make wine moving forward? Yeah, I mean, when we, uh, I, I, I mentioned that there was some research. So we were, you know, we were already kind of narrowed down to looking at, you know, uh, particular farming methods and particular, you know, cellar methods. Um, we didn't totally uh, appreciate the the natural wine movement, if you will. We, we were well aware of, of Eric's philosophy of farming, um, and we loved his wines for their purity, for their, um, you know, electrifying acidity. Um, we appreciated the, the breadth with which he was operating and the fact that he, like us, um, had not left high school um, straight into a cellar, but rather he, you know, had gone off and had a career as a material scientist for decades before right. he decided to make wine. And here we were in our 30s, you know, kind of, you know, thinking a similar divergent path. Um, when we got to France, uh, it was there that we really better understood that there was, um, you know, kind of philosophy beyond the, the soil. And it's not to say that the farming isn't... Um, pivotal and, and really the foundation of natural wine, but the lack of continuity to bottle was what was kind of the disconnect for many, especially in America, but also in Europe, where you would have organically farmed or biodynamically farmed grapes brought into a cellar, and then more of a conventional method would take hold where you would you know, eliminate all the microbial activity with sulfur or lysozyme, and then you would add back cultured yeast, and you would use new oak, and you would filter and find and all these things that were really kind of at odds with the idea of farming microbes, which is kind of pivotal to, to natural wine. So that was really the big aha for us with Eric. Was, was realizing that a, a, 
it needs to go from soil to bottle and not just, you know, stop once you get the grapes off the vine. Right. Um, and honestly... You said you prescribe to continuity from soil to bottle. Absolutely. Not, it goes all the way to the end. It absolutely. And, and that's low intervention practices? It is low intervention practices. Um, I think by just as a result, I think... Um, you know, we don't set up to say it has to be low intervention. It's rather, you know, we want to, again, you know, focus on, you know, a, a soil that is alive and what that's going to mean um, for the resulting grapevine and the resulting grapes. And then, you know, take that into the cellar and continue to kind of steward it. Um, and we definitely have things we do that you know, mask terroir, if you will. So we do skin contact whites in several wines, and that is not necessarily going to be a direct representation of what that varietal would do right. without that. Right. Um, carbonic maceration also is another or example of that. Um, but really trying to, to, to not use... Um, well, what would you call those? Are those... Those are not manipulations. They're techniques, or are they both? I don't know. I mean, I mean, I get your point, and you know, right, it's, but it's semantics a little bit. Um, I don't worry too much about. Uh, I mean, there are some people that would say that you know you're not uh, making uh, terroir-driven decisions if you're doing those things. Um, for us, I don't know. We want to be, uh, you know, mindful of what we're doing both to kind of soil or planet and our health. Um, so that, you know, pretty much eliminates petrochemicals from both the cellar right, and that, the soil. That's really the, the mission. That is our mission. It's good for us, good for the earth. Let's eliminate it's, glyphosate in my lifetime. I mean, that would be a very big goal. All right, so help me with this. Because um, I've been wrestling with the term natural wine for a while on the show with guests, different points of views. And I'm not looking for you to give me the definition. I'm just looking for you to give me your explanation or what natural wine is. I know we talked about it a little, and is even that the right term? <laughs> um, I have sat down over the years um, with multiple people uh, and argued the word natural, especially in America, is, a, is, is not the right term. Um, you know, in 2010, we poured at Vinatur uh, at Villa Favorita, which is one of the natural wine fairs outside of uh, Vinitaly. And we came back just, you know, all excited and wanting to tell anybody who would listen that, you know, we were the only American winery to pour there and how exciting that was. Natural wine this, natural wine that. And no one knew what I meant when I was saying natural <laughs> wine. And the people that, you know, actually would at least entertain me were like, what, every, what, what does that word mean? And it's true. It's completely abused in the food industry in America, you know, and Go it's to unregulated. A supermarket. It's on everything. Exactly. Crap. Uh, absolutely. Natural crap. <laughs> it is wholly misused. Um, but it is the word that the Europeans had started using. I don't. I mean, back in two thousand six and seven, and you know, so as people in America started making wine in the same manner and and sort of becoming part of this global community. Um, there just really wasn't an opportunity in my mind to change the word 
at that point, and certainly to have uh, a community with two words, one for America didn't really make sense either. So, you know, for better or worse, it is called natural wine. It definitely is a, a lightning rod um, for discussion and, and debate as to, well, isn't everything natural or it's such a misused word? But, you know, for us, it's, um, you know, we've, we've been making wine since 2004 for Donkey and Goat, and not until about 2000, you know, 15, 14, did we start talking about our wines as natural wines. Um, we haven't changed what we do. We've done the same from day one. That's typically but, Europe, too. I mean, winemakers in the Loire, they farm naturally and they vinted, you know, naturally. And, you know, they didn't call it anything. Now it's a big thing. You did that from the start. Exactly. I mean, I think, um, you know, it, 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 we, we have to put put parameters and, and names around um, what we're doing in order to convey to others to to have some common understanding. Um, we'll talk about that. So I guess you're leading towards organics, biodynamics, sustainability. Is that what you're pointing towards? Well, sort of. I mean, yeah. I mean, I, ideally, I think there would be at the very least, you know, uh, a charter or, or something to, to define. Um, you know, I've talked to a number of people about that, and I don't know if it will happen. Um, but for us, uh, yeah, I mean, in the, in the vineyards, uh, you know, we, like I said, we we're farming microbes. We want soil that's alive. We're not, you know, using glyphosate or, or Roundup in anything. And we don't think anyone should. Um, we are not always certified. Some of ours are Demeter certified biodynamic, some are organic certified, some are practicing organic. And, um, because of our involvement, we're okay with not being certified. I understand the value of that for the consumer, but, um, it's also, you know, not always a perfect solution when it is just within the box of organic farming. Um, but for, explain something, you don't own vineyards. No, so we, you we don't work own land. With farmers and contract, but you have a a bar that you want them, you know, to live up to. Yeah, well, back to one of your earlier which questions. Is what you're alluding to. One of the things that we we definitely took away from Eric was the 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 you know absolute um, single most decision we can make is who we're going to work with from a farming perspective, and to spend, you know all the time necessary to find the right partners. And and we do that. So we don't go into a vineyard and say, hey, we want you to get off the roundup. We go into a vineyard that's already... Not using it. Right. <laughs> um, and, and, and doing things that, you know, we want to do or growing things we want to grow or willing to work with us to plant new things. Um, so like in El Dorado, where we've been since um, 2005 with Ron Mansfield, he and his son Chuck are the only ones that farm for us up there. And, you know, the wine we're going to taste was planted by, by us and, and Ron at, at a vineyard that Ron leases. And in the other Appalachians, Mendocino, Napa, Sonoma, we, we have more vineyard grower-specific sites. But still, you know, we're, we're in it for the long haul. You know, we're, we're not just going on the market every year and trying to buy some fruit. Um, so we are kind of, uh, I mean, we're not directing because the people we work with are, are well equipped to do what they don't they, need. The they don't need my two cents. Um, so El Dorado is in the Sierra Nevada. Yeah, twenty six hundred to twenty eight hundred foot elevation vineyards on granitic soils, um, all peppered around the American River. So very reminiscent of the Rhone Valley, which is what led us up there. Right, and Eric Texier was a Ronist, and that was a exactly. big influence. You said Mendocino. You said Napa. 
Mendocino. Um, we, we went to the Anderson Valley initially to find some very cool climate, Syrah, which we did at the Broken Leg Vineyard. Worked with Steve Williams for, for years before he, he died and uh, later expanded to other vineyards in that appellation as well as surroundings in Mendocino County, Mendocino Ridge. And then more recently, uh, we started working with Steve Mathiason at Linda Vista, and we, we also get a little Cabernet from Steve. And then we have a new project in Sonoma with some Pinot Meunier. Okay, so you're, you're pretty much all over the place. Yeah. Uh, so you started with an eye towards Rhone varietals because you were with Eric in the Rhone. and We uh, had you, fallen in love with the Rhone. Your initial wines Absolutely. I mean, you know, Raymond Troyer uh, was an early love of ours. Um, uh, you know, the the breadth of opportunity within the Rhone. So we, we kind of had our business head on thinking, well, we don't want to make everything. Oh, but if we go with Rhone, we've got, you know, <laughs> right. a huge breadth and, and depth of opportunity to stay within, you know, the box, if you will, of, of Rhone varietals. Um, so there we stayed for about five years until we really started branching out to your point of doing a lot of other things So your as first well. five years, you stayed true to the Rhone. And, you know, if you look on the website or you look on a – in a wine store at a shelf, the amount of grapes that you vinify now. It's staggering. It, it is staggering. And what's what's the what's the right word? Not motivation, but what's the reason you want to keep making wine with other grapes? Well, I think, I mean, it's certainly not probably the best financial decision. You know, the okay. best financial decision we'll would be to make... that box off, no. No, yeah, to make, you know, three or four wines... And a lot of them, but you know, we this is our labor of love. So um, there's passion, there's you know intellectual curiosity, um, you know there's uh, just kind of staying a challenge. So we evolve, we become interested in different things. We have wines that we taste that inspire us to go after you know making something in that realm. So that's the genesis. So people own property, they go, you know what, we're going to clear this little plot and grow a little Pinot Gris. That's not you because you don't own it. So what? what's the reason? You, you taste something, you want to try it, so you'll look for exactly. somebody like, who's planned. T- tell me how that comes about. It, you know, it's a multitude of ways. So with the Pinot Gris that I make, that was more, you know, uh, I was interested in making it. I wanted to make it in concrete and have it have some skin contact. And that meant that I wanted to have a a vineyard that was going to provide me Pinot Gris that, you know, maintained a level of acidity because when you put it on the skins, you are going to reduce your acidity a little bit and have a higher pH. Um, So that kind of immediately sent me more north coast than El Dorado, if you will, and uh, started asking who's got, you know, organic biodynamic Pinot Gris. And there's just Just not that much out there. (laughs) And, you know, that led me to Filigreen Farm. And, you know, there I've been since 2014 and uh, very happy. Yeah. So that's how it comes about. That's how it comes about. So through the years, how many different grapes have you made wine from? Got to be dozens, right? Oh, dozen and a half, two dozen, probably more than two dozen. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll get into that uh, in a second. Um, before I get into donkey and goat and specific wines and all of that, I just wanted to get your take on being a woman in the wine business. <laughs> um, you were a woman in the tech business. Uh, we talked about morphing into the wine business. Was being a woman in the business when you started? 
Was there any uh, disadvantage or negative effects on you trying to build the business being a woman? I mean... I mean, you had Jared, but let's put that aside. Yeah, no. I mean, I think one of the interesting things in the last, you know, few years, um, you know, I'm old enough to have been part of the generation of women that, you know, maybe didn't consciously recognize all of the biases because they were so pervasive. And I've always been kind of a can-do girl, you know, just roll up my sleeves. And I mean, my mom ingrained that in me early on. Like, you can pretty much do whatever you want. You just, just got to work, work through hard. that. Exactly. Yeah, which is crazy, right? Um, and, you know, I did. And, and since, you know, all of the, the Me Too movement and just the, the open dialogue that's been occurring, and I have two daughters, you know, there's been moments where I'm like looking back at my career and, you know, pretty big transgressions here and there that just hadn't even entered my consciousness in decades. Um, as far as the wine part goes, you know, yeah, there were years and honestly, there still are occasionally where um, the assumption is that I must be in the office doing the books or, you know, not possible could I actually be in the cellar Still get that. Doing the, oh, absolutely. It's like female psalms. They come to a table, they go, can you send the psalm Can over? you send the psalm? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, you still feel that? It, not as much, much. But, but certainly it still occurs, yes. Um, and, you so know, I think it's it just then, a bias. Still feel it now. But never got so far in front of you where you couldn't do what you wanted to do. No, but there's definitely some, you know, it's just, it's like in any, any industry. So I'm in the market doing a visit and, you know, all the male winemakers and male sales reps are going to carry on for, you know, hours. And I'm not invited to go because I'm a woman. And maybe Is that's that for awkward. real? Of course it's for real. Um, you know, and so there's definitely still, I think. I would have thought in New York, and I've interviewed a well, lot I'm of these people. Well, I'm not saying that it's New York. No, I but... know what you're saying. The fact that it even exists or you're talking about it a little, I didn't even think. Well, and again, I don't know that it's necessarily, I mean, I'm, I'm a pretty open-minded person. So I'm not saying that anyone is, you know, maliciously saying, don't invite Tracy Brandt. No, She's no, a female. I, I, but I didn't it's take like, it that way. You know, hey, it's, me and the boys it's easier are not. here. It's easier not to have you there. And. Well, it's not even that. It's just like me and the boys are going to go over to the bar, and it turns out, you know, one of the boys is, you know, a very important wine buyer, and the other boys are winemakers, and they get to, you know, con you know, basically provide connections that will eventually lead to sales. And because I'm a woman, not invited, I lose out on that. And that's, you know, that's just reality. I mean, the the flip side now, I think, is now there's so much focus that maybe there's going to be you know, in the coming years, women going out without inviting the men to go to the bar. It's starting and, to happen. You know. It's starting to happen. I mean, the last question in that set was, are women getting their props? And you sort of answered it. You're in a market trip today. You know, your uh, importer, distributor, um, Jenny and Francois, they're doing a portfolio tasting next week. You're in the market to talk to people. Um, and that stuff's still going on. So... Yeah, I mean, I, mean, again, I know I think you're it's not whining, and I'm not trying to put you on the spot. <laughs> I'm really just trying to put a light that in the wine business, there's still, you know, issues with women. And I, I think, you know, you. Uh, I think there's been a huge spotlight in the last couple of years, which, you know, is definitely making it more difficult to keep it in the shadows. Right. And That's also a good thing. making people that are, you know, inherently, um, again, not doing it maliciously is just a, an. an ingrained bias aware so i do think change is happening in a good way that's good and i'm optimistic for my daughters all right so we'll move along 
yes, hopefully you are optimistic and it'll be an even better world for them because it's a good world, but let's make it better. Um, so you've been at this, God, a little under 20 years. In all the years of making wine, I mean, what have you really learned and what have you changed? <laughs> I mean, we, we talked about adding grapes because you get intrigued. What about the product, making it better, you know, the commitment towards natural? I mean, anything that really comes to mind? I, I, your, your philosophy? I mean, I know that... Well, I think the biggest thing is, um, I mean, certainly... In the, you know, in the early years, it was harder to trust our instinct, whether it be a picking decision or, um, you know, a, a winemaking decision or an you know, an evaluation of something that, you know, might seemingly present as a flaw but would actually work itself out just because it's like a stinky fermentation and give it some time. Um, but that's so, know as you grow. You know more as you do more exactly, as you grow. For sure. So you needed time out in the field and in the cellar. Exactly. Um, and, and more experience, more historical evidence that, you know, of what like worked and what didn't work. you're not caught up on metrics. You, you just sort of said that. It's how it tastes, the brightness, the acidity. We're definitely not focused on metrics. Like, and we've never published our pH and TA and all the things that some winemakers publish with their wines um, because we think there's an inherent judgment. And, and our pHs will run high sometimes. And if there's a balance in the, the wine, you know, we're okay with Syrah at 3.8 or 3.9. Um, and you know, there are winemakers who say, no, no red wine could ever be over 3.6. It would be unstable. Um, and you're like, well, our, ours are, but we don't want you to judge by the numbers. We want you to taste and decide if you like it. So it's more about not sulfites or no sulfites or alcohol levels or acidity. It's what's dealt to you, what you like, and how you want it to come out in the bottle. Fair? Yeah. I mean, I think uh, more or less fair. Uh, you know, we definitely tend to have wines that result in lower alcohol and our and our wines have trended down, and, and some of that is just the way California vintages have evolved, and some of that is like I said, we gained confidence after you know the first three or four years to 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 push pick dates or push growers really, and growers stopped giving us a hard time. You know, when we were starting out, there was growers that would you know question our sanity for picking. Tell people why you would want to pick earlier. So we like to pick um, basically uh, to talk about metrics. We're watching acid more than sugar and we're tasting so you know phenolic ripeness and flavors are are paramount but isn't everyone measuring bricks you're right. watching the acid we measure they have bricks. that little thing looking at the, but they're obsessed refract, with that yeah so we don't ever take the refractometer refractometer into the vineyard we just taste because we feel like we get uh, a biased judgment if we're looking at the numbers we taste, we sample, we get back to the winery. Then we run the metrics, and sometimes we're, we're surprised and sometimes we're not. But what we're trending uh, or tracking the trends are, are on the acid because we, um, we have some ability to manipulate our acidity vis-a-vis -vis blending. So we've planted a lot of pick pool, for example, over the years, which we use as a natural blender um, to raise acidity in the whites. We do the same with Grenache or Grenache Gris on the reds. But you can't manipulate it that far um, so pick date is really, really critical if acidity is important, which it is for us. Um, the other two things for our wines is we always are also kind of focused on texture. So whether it be white or red, um, we, we like to what have some texture. texture. 
So P- people go, okay, I get it. But when I mean, I'm drinking a wine, Tracy, tell me when I'm drinking it. What? Well, some the of heck, it can what be, am I noticing? Some of it can be a, a, a tannin, right? So like my skin contact Roussan has, um, you know, loads and loads of texture through the chewy tannins on the mid palate. Um, sometimes you can get texture from certain varietals, like uh, the wine that we've got here today um, included some planting. To, it was a kind of a, a purposeful field blend, but we planted Grenache Blanc and Vermentino with uh, three other varietals because those could lend some layers in the mid palate, so the perception of, of texture, if you will, within the wine. Um, you can get it from stem inclusion sometimes as well. So it, it depends, or batonnage, sometimes you can, you can add some layers um, into your Chardonnay if it feels a little thin. Um, so every available opportunity, whether it's blending grapes, stem contact or not, that's what's available to you. That not, not adding acid or, you know, that mm. purple crab. That's how you make the wines to the texture, balance, and acidity that you want, right? Yeah. And the last one I was going to mention, too, is that. So we recently, last couple of years, started working with clay. And clay is far more permeable than, say, oak or our concrete tanks that we also work with. Is clay the same as amphora? Or that's yeah. even okay. Yeah. So it's an amphora style thing. Not shape, but yes. But, but material. Yes, exactly. Okay. And they're made in Italy. Um, and those lend even more texture because there's more oxygen into the, the vat, the wine, during the fermentation or the aging, which opens it up a little bit. So when I ask, what have you learned? You've learned that by going to clay gives, right? One so of the many things, yeah. yeah. So is the majority of wines you're making in clay or no we're still probably majority uh in oak uh but we use oak uh both barrel and we have several large terence oak uh upright tanks we have some known blow concrete we have the clay we do a few things in stainless what we don't do and what we've never done and i think we're somewhat unique is we have never fermented or aged in plastic and we never will and that's tell us why well, back to my earlier statement that I feel um, I will get on the soapbox and, and get quite dogmatic on the need of the uh, industry to divorce from the petrochemical industry, whether it be soil or cellar. And, you know, we definitely have some plastic tools around, but we definitely have never entertained the idea of fermentation of plastic. So typically, if you visit a winery and you go in the winemaking area, there's these huge pick bins, plastic yeah. pick bins, and even the grapes fermenting, you know, with the, in plastic bins. Too, and there's right? plastic totes that some people will None age in. And yeah, I mean, and a lot of it's a cost decision. And, you know, so I don't, um, you know, I, I don't try to be too obnoxious about faulting others for their decisions. Um, but like for us, when we started out, we decided to uh, the cheap route to not using plastic was to find a bunch of used Hungarian oak puncheons. They're you know, half ton upright wood vats. And we, we turned 18 or 20 of those into our, our fermenters for the first many years. That's all we had. Interesting. So at Donkey and Goat, you make all these different wines. Um, they're all relatively small runs, right? Relatively. Making... We have a couple now, Gadabout and Gallivanter, we make about 1,200 cases. And those are our kind of... Uh, <laughs> for you, that's a lot. <laughs> that's a lot. That's a whole right. lot, right. But uh, I mean, we're talking 150, 250, 350 on some of these other wines too, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, in a given year, let's talk about 17, go back to 16, 
How many different wines are you going to put in the market? <laughs> um, okay, so we we make on any given year somewhere between twenty five and maybe twenty eight wines. Different bottles. Different bottles available for the consumer. Um, not all of those are distributed, but okay. yes, we, we have but they're a, bottled. They're made and bottled. They're made and bottled and about a You're quarter crazy. go to our wine club and, okay. and nowhere else. So that's important because your wine club's the consumer. It's just exactly. your, you know, immediate consumer. Um, so talk about the wines you just mentioned. Those are the, uh, larger runs, right? The Gadabout and the Gallivanter? Yeah. yeah. So those are two wines that we started making in yeah, about 2014. Um, fairly recently. Yeah, no, for sure. Uh, they are both um, kind of, uh, they're blends. Um, they're lar- loosely based on what I kind of call the fighting varietals. So the white's a Chardonnay and the red is a Merlot. But they take, you know, a host of other things that are in our cellar that honestly don't wind up elsewhere in the kind of, Very in the main event. Absolutely. Right. Um, it's a way for us to, you know, have a home for things and make a delicious by the glass you know, 20-ish dollar wine um, that's still grown the same way and made the same way. So it's not a, it's not a second label. Um, it's not made off-site, you know, which, you know, right. it says a lot, I think. You're making a pet nat. You've been making it for years. We're one of the first domestic pet nat makers. We started a... When? Uh, the first experiments were in 9 and 10. Okay. Um, that's not that long ago. And, no, and but... being the first, yeah. it just shows you how... How new everything is. Yeah, in the States at least. I've, absolutely. Because what's cooler than popping a pet net at at a dinner or a party? Right? I did it last night. It's, it's the perfect, it, you it's, know. It's fantastic. Um, so, yeah, no, the Lily's uh, Pet Nat, which is our oldest running, we the first vintage was 11. And it's a uh, Chardonnay from the deep end of Anderson Valley that is so acidic. Um, not until this year did I ever make a still wine out of it. Um, but There's it's a largely... Lily's Chard? Um, no, it's, or... uh, it's a skin contact Chardonnay okay. for the wine club um, from is the, the same pet vineyard. Nat o- is the Pet Nat always the Lily's? There's several Pet Nats. Okay. The one we distribute um, and is... Huge production of 420 cases okay. um, uh, is the lilies, yes. Okay. Um, and you make a rosé, and you've even gotten off the uh, Rhone and, and other interesting grape things, like you said, making Merlot and a cab every now and then. Yep. Right? Um, but is the wheelhouse still the Rhone varietals? I think so. I mean, it's still definitely forty-five-ish percent of what we make. Maybe, maybe fifty-five okay. in some still. years. Um, and we still have, uh, you know, several. I don't know, probably six, maybe seven, eight wines that that are Rhone varietals. Maybe more. Okay. I'd have to add it up. Let me see what I have here. One, two, three, four. Yeah, we probably yeah, have. No, they, yeah, there's just, a lot. Yeah. Um, all right, a couple more things, and we're going to take um, a quick break, and I want to subject you to our wine list. Um, you're probably one of the few people that wrote a manifesto <laughs> <laughs> about what you're doing or what you want to do or mm. what we should be doing or what we should aspire to or what other people should be doing, and we talked a lot about some of those aspects and all that. You wrote that, I think, 10 years ago. I think it was 09. It was. And 09 doesn't seem that long ago again. It was a different world, though. So to answer two things, 
what what inspired you to sit down and write this manifesto? And it wasn't two paragraphs. Mm, and yeah. how is it holding up now as far as what you're doing, what you continue to aspire to do? So the first question, uh, so in all honesty, it was a rant. It was a harvest okay. of 2009. After midnight, there was a wine buyer in the Bay Area with uh, you know a, a sizable amount of buying power, if you will, several restaurants that was, um, you know, I thought being irrational on some of his um, reasons for 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 not taking our wine, and one of them was our alcohol. And so Too I low? no, it was too high. It was so too high. one of our wines um, from 2008 was 14.1, ah. and you know. As a natural winemaker, we have never manipulated our alcohol. So, yes, our alcohol is our alcohol. It's a decision of That's pick how that date, came out. but it we don't water it, and you know we're not we're not doing a reverse osmosis treatment. So it is what it is. And so I went on a kind of a tirade, you know, being tired and angry and and whatnot, and wrote that was an email that has been almost exactly reprinted. I think there's been like two or three minor edits. Um, and Jared basically, this was back in the day, uh, we had a blog. And so Jared basically copied and pasted my, my email onto the blog. It was like, this is a great manifesto. And later on, we took it and put it on the website as a manifesto, but it really was just a very, you know, honest, uh, reaction to something someone had said and saying, this is everything we do. And last fall, actually, I had someone ask me to reread it. And, and, it's and not like an old yearbook picture. You didn't cringe. It all made sense, right? No, it definitely still makes sense. There's a couple things. You know, I said that it was impossible. My very, my, my, as something like my French friends would say, it was impossible to make um, lower alcohol wines in California, which, of course, is not true. Um, and then I, I said something about we only ferment and wood and um, stainless because we didn't have concrete and clay at the time, um, but the new plastic thing still stands. Um, right. th- th- that's so more yeah, of a it's, thing. It's I mean, pretty, you evolved into good. clay, which, you know, is ancient and all of that. Um, so if you want to see that manifesto, just go to the uh, Donkey and Goat website. Tracy, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, um, I'm going to ask you a few questions for our wine list, and then i got to get you out of here. We're also going to taste one of your wines. Um, we're talking to Tracy Brand from Donkey and Goat. Um, you're listening to The Grape Nation. I'm Sam Ben Ruby. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Visit Ithaca. Located in New York's Finger Lakes region, Ithaca boasts an authentic craft beverage experience, tasty farm-to-table culinary adventures, and scenic outdoor recreation. As the saying goes, Ithaca is gorgeous. The city is home to 150 waterfalls and gorges sprinkled through its downtown and sloping hillsides. State parks and acres of natural lands offer outdoor recreation for every level of enthusiast. Come stroll among the cool ravines, scenic hiking trails, and natural vistas. Ithaca is home to Ivy League Cornell University and Ithaca College, resulting in an influx of new cultures, new tastes, and new energy every year. There's so much to explore, from art galleries and museums to unique attractions like the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Ithaca sits at the heart of a blossoming heritage and craft cider industry. Some of these delicious ciders can be bought in market, 
but many of the most unique varieties can only be experienced with a visit to Ithaca and this great cider region. Go to visitithaca.com to get inspired and plan your trip today. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Allison Kane, and I'm the host of In the Sauce here on HRN. Now that I'm expanding my cooking school to a sauce line in grocery stores, I need all the help I can get. And I want to help other entrepreneurs build their brands too. You can find In the Sauce wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. All right, we're back. We're back with my guest, Tracy Brandt. Tracy is the proprietor of Donkey and Goat in Berkeley, California. Um, Tracy, we ask all our guests to ask answer five questions. <laughs> They're the same five questions for everyone. I should have prepped. I won't let you because it's spontaneous. <laughs> Do not um, fixate or obsess on these. Go quickly. All right. All right. First question is, what are you drinking now? And that's in the context of what are you trying? What are you tasting? Is it seasonal? What's interesting you? What's in the fridge? Anything work-related, non-work-related? Yeah. I mean... Uh, I'm not going to probably be the best at listing specific vintages and producers, but no, I'm no, always drinking intense. champagne. So champagne, um, top of the list. Good days, bad days, medium days. Um, give me right an interest. Now. Is it grower champagne? Do you have a favorite? You know, give me drop a name or two for me that you like. I thought you weren't going to make me do that. You don't have to. <laughs> Move on um, to what else you're drinking. Then. Uh, certainly, given that it's spring, you know we're. Uh, in the process of getting our hands on as much rosé as we can. You like rosé? Um, I love rosé. Okay. And I, but I drink rosé all, all year long, right. but the fact that there's the new vintage makes it kind of exciting time to be drinking rosé. Okay. Um, we're working on our pet nats, so it's always fun to be tasting other pet nats. We're disgorging next week, um, and we have to decide what we're going to top each one with. So we've been drinking different pet nats. When you say other nuts. people's pet nats, there's a lot of pet nats from Europe, and they're starting to have more brands, you know, come out in the U.S. What are you talking about, both or mostly from here? Oh, no, both, for sure. Um, I mean, I definitely love uh, focusing on California because of the, especially Northern California, because then there's, you know, similarities in terroir and whatnot that that can be gleaned. But but certainly pet nuts from all over Australia. Um, I'm definitely... uh, have been exploring Australian wines. Australia has done an amazing job of kind of pivoting, I think, from a, yeah. what they were it's to what they are now, man. and it's super exciting. A lot of good stuff. Um, yeah, an amazing array. All right, so you did good. <laughs> Champagne, rosé, pet net. All right, favorite wine and food pairing. Not something you necessarily eat every night or every month, but what, like, ooh, that's good. All right, you're going to you're gonna laugh, but it's going to be... No, there's be, no laughing here. Well, I'm going to have to say champagne or skin you, contact whites with fried chicken. Okay, so I forgot to tell you the Grape Nation rule is you can't say champagne and oysters. <laughs> but champagne is a big answer, and with fried foods, and fried chicken has come up more than a few times. It's So it's fabulous. obviously a fab. People say pizza, popcorn, you know, other things and all that. We actually have a party every year with fried chicken, and then we do have everybody BYO either skin contact or champagne, and they both work fabulously well. I interviewed a woman last week, Ariel Arce. She owns Air mm-hmm. Champagne Parlor. Before she had that, she owned Birds and Bubbles. Yep. So it was a champagne and fried it, chicken place, obviously. I know it. Blue. All right. Tracy Brandt's favorite wine restaurant and or bar, probably Stick West's, 
You could do New York if you want. I realize this became a tough question because you don't want to leave people out or favor other people. But talk to me about people that have created an environment, you know, for wine or champagne where the selection is there, the knowledge, the vibe. Does anything feel like that to you here or in San Francisco or Napa or wherever you well, favorites, I mean, I'm going to have to say... Or people who do well. Yeah, no, I mean, there's a lot. Uh, but immediately popped in my head is the punch down, Lisa in D.C. Um, you know, they they came out early, and I will disclose, Lisa was actually in my cellar in 2009. It's okay. Um, but uh, they do a fabulous job at walking the line in what can be a very insular community, natural wine. Um, and... But completely open arms, educational, you know, anybody that's, can walk in there. I can take friends in there. That makes it a little that, different. That's what I'm looking it's for. It's fantastic. You know, anything you don't have else, to know wine. Anything else come to mind? Well, the Riddler is, of course, champagne. Okay. Um, and I hear they coming to New York, actually. The Riddler's in San Francisco, Hayes Valley. Ah. Uh, but I believe they're going to be opening in New York. Very cool. Later this year. All right. Those are good ones. All right. Second to last question. Do you have a favorite all-time wine? Maybe not one, maybe two. I become very redundant in saying the answer used to be based on the rarest or most expensive. It's not that anymore. It's become experiential or, you know, what's a wine, a favorite wine of yours? Yeah, I'm I'm not going to probably give you a good answer there. There is Um, no bad answer. (laughs) Well, maybe you, but go ahead. Uh, No, I mean... uh, I don't know. For me, wine is every day. Wine is wine is community and food. So, um, okay. So I don't I'll take like that to in turn the it into context of that. What's a favorite wine in that context? I'm not going to give you an answer. I'm sorry. Okay. God, are you difficult? <laughs> I think you may be the only person who have not answered that question. But I will let you go on that. All right. See if you can answer this one. It may be a little harder for you, but not. Um, it sort of skews towards retail. If you had to tell somebody the best wine around 15, 20 bucks retail, mm. a red and a white, like I always say, my kids are in their 20s. They sure. don't want to go to a party with an $8, $9 bottle, and they're not going to spend 45 So if they can come with a cool bottle for 18 20 15 yeah, you can go category like Muscadet, grape. Well, I was going to say, what I would, do you what do you think in your mind? What are, where's the wine values in a red and a white? I mean, if I'm going into a bottle shop, I would think you know go to the Spanish selection. Go to the used to be the Loire. Loire's gotten a little expensive, right? But so Spanish wines, Spanish any wines, particular lots regions? of values. Oh, uh, uh, no. <laughs> okay, so would we put Spanish under reds? Um or whites yeah, or whites. There's, there's some lovely white right, wines. I'm going to force you to give me a white Greek wines. Greek wines, huge value there. Huge value lots there. Of, I agree. Lots with of that. natural wines coming out of Greek these days. Greece these are days. Are a good chunk of the wines from Greece naturally made? That I don't know. Oh, okay. I just know but that there are some that, are that Jenny okay. and uh, my California distributor Amy Atwood um, both have a increasing number of natural Greek wines that are delicious. All right, so we're going to answer that question with wines from Spain seem to offer good values, I agree. Mm-hmm. And Greek wines were never, you know, expensive. They make no. expensive ones, but I think you can find some good values. Absolutely. I always tell people, go to your favorite wine store, get to know the guy. That would be my two cents. Um, ask him to, uh, exactly. or her, to do that. All right, admirable job. Thank you. B, B plus, because you didn't finish one question. <laughs> 
You didn't taste my wine. No, no, no. We're getting to that now. All right. So we end our show with a segment called the Weekly Wine Sip, and I'm happy to sit across from you with one of your wines. Every week we taste a different wine on air. For our Weekly Wine Sip this week, um, Tracy was kind enough to bring in one of her wines. It's a 2017 Donkey and Goat white wine from uh, El Dorado, which is the Sierra Nevada. It's the Eliza from the Barzati Vineyards. Tell me a little more about this wine. Yeah, so uh, I don't know, somewhere in 2007, 2008, um, uh, it, it came high on our list of things to work with or find or plant being Claret. And, you know, we had seen and worked with Claret in France. And um, Claret is the grape. Claret is the grape, C-L- not the style. Right. Good point. C L A R. C L A I R E. Double T E. Right. Claret. You know, Claret de D. Right. Exactly. Um, so basically took a number of years to get it out of quarantine. Tablas Creek and Ron Mansfield get it in the ground in 2010. And Ron, our farmer up in El Dorado, um, had a new project at the Barsodi Vineyard and basically came to several of his clients like us. Um, and Steve Edmonds got a chunk there, Nathan and Duncan, Raj, uh, Jolie Lay. There's a lot of All us. the good guys. All the, all the fun kids. Um, and basically, so what do you want to do with your block? And we said, well, we want to put Claret in the ground, and we want to make this wine we have in our head that we know we're going to want a kind of purposeful field blend, if you will. Um, we're going to want Pigpool because Pigpool is the acidity answer to California. Um, we had Vermentino, Grenache Blanc, and Roussan and some other vineyards, but we wanted to have everything together. So that's what we did. We planted Claret. Pickpool, Grenache Blanc, Roussan, and Vermentino at Barsodi, and we made our first vintage in 15. So that's and five different grapes I counted? Five different sound? grapes. So the five grapes were grown on that plot? Grown together in our block, okay. exactly. And um, not not all picked the same day. They, right. It does vary each vintage. Um, and even if we could get everything in on the same time, we would still vinify some separately just to have some options at the end with blending. Uh we do a little skin contact on this. I mean, it's under 5%, just enough to, to again, talking about texture, um, boost up the texture a little bit. We use our version of New Oak. Uh, we don't have any New Oak barrels in our winery, but we do bring in once-used barrels each vintage just it's to keep... your newest oak. Exactly. It's not New Oak. It's your newest oak. Exactly, okay. which still imparts a, a decent amount of influence. So this has contact with oak, not old, old. A lot the 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 seventy five percent or so is neutral, and then twenty five percent is in those once used barrels. Okay. Um, and yeah, we work pretty hard at this because it's it's a, you know, a blend that takes months to make. You know, we'll taste and make you know the base, and then you know kind of taste and tweak it over a good month or so. We bottle it uh, in August, and then we release it, you know, the following April or so. So so it, tell me a couple things before we evaluate it. So how many cases of this are you making? This is about two forty, two fifty. So not easy to find, but it's out there. It's out there, for sure. Restaurants, some better wine stores, New York, absolutely, Chicago, and all that. All right, let's uh, give it a sniff and throw it over the tongue and talk about it. So color, it's got that beautiful yellowy straw, but a little cloudy because you don't filter a fine. That's correct. But, But, you know, cloudy, nice clarity, though. So beautiful color. All right, both Tracy and I. Tracy's got a cold. I have allergies, <laughs> so we're going to attempt to give you some. We're nose really de- on our game some today. Some nose descriptors yeah. here, right? Sudafed. What do you get from memory, Tracy? Mm. 
Um, well, there's definitely, uh, I think this wine has a lovely minerality. Um, there's an unctuousness, I think, coming from the skin contact. Um, kind of a, a little bit of melon even. Yes. Um, yes. There's definitely some citrus notes, um, some white flowers on, on the nose, typically. I get citrus, white flowers, some of that melon. Um, Layers in the mid-palate. Mouthfeel. You said the word unctuous. I don't know if the mouth feels unctuous, but it's very full, right? Mm-hmm. Um, how would you describe it as a medium plus? Or yeah, I think full? it's medium plus. I mean, some of it's coming, again, from the, the, the touch of skin contact. Um, some of it's coming from those once-used barrels. and those, I think The acidity. The acidity is, is right there. Absolutely. And does the palate, does the nose transfer to the palate, or do new things pick up on the palate? You tell me. Um, I mean, I think it, it transfers pretty um, I do too. You know, I, I seamlessly. There's but nothing so different from the No, it's not nose, a juxtaposition. You know, yeah. Um, it, it's a terrific wine. Uh, we're sitting here in the morning, and Tracy made a joke and said, good breakfast wine, and it happens <laughs> to be a good breakfast wine. Yeah, we just need some food. Tracy, what would you pair this with? Uh, well, last night I paired it with a lovely scallop dish, and it was fantastic. Now, um, I've learned it's not necessarily the scallop, but either the sauce or the preparation. So how was it prepared, and what effect did that have? Oh, that's a good question, and I didn't actually eat it because I was too sick. Was it creamy? (laughs) Was it citrusy? No, it was citrusy. Okay, so this is a good match for that Um, because the citrus and the acidity and all of that. So scallops. But even with the the acidity and the the skin contact, I mean, it can even stand up to a decent amount of fat as well. Um, Okay. I mean, Uh, not as much as maybe a, a, you know, Chablis, but certainly... right. Uh, I agree with that. So this is the 2017 uh, Donkey and Goat white wine, uh, El Dorado. It's called the Eliza from the Barsati uh, Vineyard. Um, and it's currently available, right, Tracy? It is. Just released, actually, All right. in the spring. Thank you for bringing that in. All right, Tracy, we have to wrap up. Um, let me just do the show close. If you have a question, suggestion, wine happening or event, hit me up at sam at thegrapenation.com. That's sam at thegrapenation.com. Follow us on Facebook at The Grape Nation. Follow us on Instagram at sbenruby and the hashtag The Grape Nation. On Twitter, we're at the hashtag uh, The Grape Nation and at Ben Ruby. You could subscribe to our uh, Grape Nation podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. Like I said earlier, we'll post Tracy's wine list, and we will give you more information on our weekly wine sip, what we drank. I'll post all that on our social, too. Um, Tracy, if we want to find out more about donkey and goat wines, what's the best way to do that? Uh well, find me on the street, but that's probably hard. So I guess go to our website. Well, our... no, you put yourself out there. So I mean, you do yeah. dinners and tastings. Absolutely. You know, so that that's not that's potentially a reality. But I mean, if people want to maybe get on a mailing list or find out more about, we have all of that on our website. Absolutely, we have a mailing list and a wine club and a tasting room if you're in Berkeley. Um, Good point, because people think California wines, Napa, Sonoma, uh, Donkey and Goat is in Berkeley. So if you're uh, in San Francisco, just take a a trot right across there. Um, What if people want to follow you and Jared on social media? We do that, too. Uh, We have an Instagram account for Donkey and Goat, as well as Jared and I personally. 
So it's at Donkey and Goat? At Donkey and Goat. And tell me about Jared and you, if people want to follow. At Tracy S. Brandt and at Jared R. Brandt. B-R-A-N-D-T. Okay. All right. I want to thank our guest, Tracy Brandt from Donkey and Goat. I want to thank our engineers at Heritage Radio Network. And I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and you've been listening to The Grape Nation. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.